You are listening to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, and also an author and professor here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, a professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology. We want to welcome you to today's podcast. Well, we have a special guest today, someone who our audience will recognize immediately. He's written over 150 books, spoken over 1,200 universities, and is a friend of Biola and Talbot, but is also my father. Josh McDowell, thanks for joining us today. Hey, what could I do? You told me either this or you would disown me. (laughs) (laughs) We, We have to use the family leverage however we can. Exactly. If you didn't yeah. agree, I would have would have used mom to get to you. But since you agreed, let's jump in. I, here's a question we want to start with. You have been in ministry for 55 years with crew, speaking, writing, teaching. And I'd like to know, how is it that you stay faithful theologically, emotionally, over this period of time, and be just as excited about ministry as you are today is really when you began? Oh, boy, I get asked that question all the time. I would say, one, it's the way I came to Christ with convictions. I not only know what I believe, but also know why I believe it, whether about the Bible, about Jesus, the resurrection, whatever. And I would say 95% of Christians have a belief system, not convictions. But when you have convictions, it'll take you through times where a lot of people would just bail out and it'll take you through victoriously. Uh, this is why it's so important we raise our children in knowing not just what they should believe, but why in the world do we even believe it? I would say that's key. And I would say the other is being married to your mother. Uh, I never knew a woman could love a man as much as your mom loves me. I've never seen it in a Hollywood movie or anything. She believes in me more than I believe in myself. And she's my greatest encourager. If I'm down, she lifts me up. If I'm up, she makes sure I don't get a big head on it. And uh, having your mom so believe in what I do keeps me, I think, consistent over the years. The other is the world situation is still out there, needs to hear about Christ. God has not rescinded his call in my life. So until he does, it hasn't even been a whisper so far. I'm just going to be obedient. Plus... Sean, it's so much fun to see lives change. Come on! That's better than a good TV show. Well, I've definitely seen you model that in your life and ministry. Josh, when you began your public speaking ministry, I, you know, I remember hearing you when I was a freshman in college back in the early 70s. It, well, you, you must be old. Well, you must be old. I'm, 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 I'm trying to actually to keep up with folks like you. Uh, but you, you spent a lot of time on college campuses. A lot of your public speaking was apologetics-based. Uh, how, over the years, has your ministry changed? And what are the things that you are most passionate about today? Well, your ministry must always change according to culture. Truth never changes. But how you present truth needs to change. Whether you're a professor, a teacher, an evangelist, a speaker, an author, or a parent. Truth remains the same. The way you present it must change. And some of the changes I've seen from this, it's gone from, and this is a lot to do with intolerance, it's gone to where you would be challenged, uh, how do you know that's true? To where the last 15, 20 years has changed to, what right do you have to say that? 
it is shifted from the content substance to the form uh questioning your right to say it not question whether it's true or not second it is shifted from objective to subjective truth uh you now have to deal with the feelings, the emotions, the relationship. For example, I called Sean a number of months back, and I said, Son, I believe this is true. In all my years in ministry, the same-sex uh, same sex gender debate and all is the first time I know of where literally feelings trump science. Feelings trump relationships. And I think that's what it's taken today. It's more, well, is it good? How do you feel? Not whether... Is it true? And so you have to change the way you present truth in that context. So can, can you be, be a little more specific? Uh, how, how has your approach yeah. changed in order, well, to, should, in order to confront some of the subjectivity yeah. of thought? The, the biggest change is it's gone from truth is truth to presenting truth in the context of relationships. People today need to see how truth relates to relationships. The relationship with one another, with a wife, with their father, with God, with the Holy Spirit, with, with the Son, everything. So I say to anyone, present truth today. It needs to be done in the context of relationships. And second, you need to listen more. I think one of the biggest things that's changed today, before somebody wants to hear your story, they want you to hear their story. And almost every time when I ask a person, what is your journey? What's your spiritual story? I cannot think of one person that didn't say then, well, where are you coming from, Josh? What's your story? Or I would say, is it okay if I share my journey? I don't know one person who's ever said no. And that is one of the big uh, changes. And the other is, is showing why truth is relevant. Uh, knowing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, well, how should that affect the way you live? Knowing the Bible is the Word of God, it's historically reliable and accurate, how should that affect the way you think and the way you relate to people? It's a, The biggest thing, Scott, is applying truth to relationships, and that's key today. Now, I think with the next generation coming up, Generation Z, it's going to be even a greater emphasis on how you feel. And that's going to be a tough one to address. Dad, I think you're right about that. In my experience with students, there's so much emphasis on feelings trumping truth. How do we make, let me take a step back. Do we need to make a case for truth itself? If feelings trump truth, then how do we convince young people to even care about truth? And if they don't care about truth, then obviously they can't believe that Jesus is the truth. So what would it look like to help a young person see that truth itself exists and is important? Well, what is interesting, I'll ask every person to find truth. Sean, almost no one, even professors in the universities, can define truth. And I'll say, well, let me give you a very practical definition. Now, give my definition of truth. And, uh, and I'll tell them, everything in your life is centered around, not your feelings, it's centered around truth. I was finished speaking at the National Apologetics Conference, walked down, because I had to get to the airport, went off to the right, and this student kind of ran right up to me. 
And he asked me a question I think Frank's been asked many times. Yeah, I've been said, well, why is truth even important? And I learned this from you, Sean. I just looked at him and very honestly just said, well, let me ask you, do you want the truthful answer or do you want the false answer? He looked at me rather strange, and I really believe, guys, he didn't get it. I said almost every question you ever ask, you want the truthful answer, reality, not a false answer. Every time you turn on your GPS, you want a truthful route to your definition, to your destination. When you go to a doctor, you want the truthful analysis of your medical situation, not just how he feels about it. And so I would dwell on truth, ask them to define it when they can't, and then I go from there. Now that's really insightful to show how how much of life is just assumes that we're interested in the truth. I mean, I would certainly want the engineers who build the bridges I drive my cars over to be interested in truth. I was in New York City, and I learned this from Robbie Zacharias. I was in New York City in this beautiful, huge new building. And I said to the guy, thank God the architect wasn't a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning postmodern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, when, when I was a college student, mo- most people were asking questions about the gospel that had to do with whether or not it was true. And apologetics really had value d- directly to seeing people come to faith. Uh, my, I think in my observation is that more and more students today and folks in the generation under 30 are, are not so much asking the question, is it true, but they're asking, is it good? Is the gospel really something good? What, what's your observation about the, the main questions that students are asking about the gospel today? The main question is probably the problem of evil, which is it's trans-generation. It goes over every generation. The problem of evil, I had it asked three or four times last week. Uh, the other is, how do you know it's true? Another is, on the good, is it good? And this is why, Scott, most effective evangelism apologetics today needs to be context in relationships. Now, let me show you what I mean. One, I almost always share my testimony first. Whether I'm doing an apologetic conference of two, three, four, five talks, I will first give my story to show how apologetics, the searching of truth, what is truth, how it applied to me, and it was good in my life with what it did. And so then, wherever I talk, and I can relate it back to my story, people identify with that. The other is to present truth in a way that applies to your life. I believe there's five steps today, whether you're a speaker, a pastor, or what. And Sean and I wrote a book on this called Unshakable Truth. In presenting truth today, first of all, what does a person need to know about that subject to become a true follower of Christ? Say it's God. Well, what do you need to know about God to become true subject God? Second, how do you know it's true? Apologetics. Third is the most critical question, so what? So what? Uh, So God is God, so it's true. So how does it apply to me? And then fourth, how does it apply in community, uh, in your experience of living it out? 
especially those four things. What do you need to know about that truth? How in the world do you even know it's true? Third, and the, and the question that gets people today is, well, so what? And boy, you better make it relevant to their life. And then fourth, how do you live it out in experience starting with community? You've been working with high school students uh, for a long time. I've been working with students about two decades, and I've seen some changes just in terms of how they think and process the world. What are some of the bigger changes you've seen since you started, really, about five, five and a half decades ago, and in particular as that plays itself out in Generation Z? Boy, there's so many there, but I emphasize one a lot of people don't emphasize. It's the uh, information overload with the Internet. The average student today takes in 34 gigabytes of data every 24 hours. If printed out, that'd be equivalent to 4.5 million pages. They're in overload, complete overload. And what this has done is added a tremendous skepticism, uh, especially, say, with junior high and the beginning of high school. And the question, even from Christians, well, how do you know that's true? There's so much out there. Tomorrow they could discover something else. They're in a tremendous overload. And that's true uh, with it. And then the other, and Sean, I think in the next five years, this is going to come out as one of the most devastating things in evangelism, apologetics, truth, and everything that people are not adjusting today. And it's pervasive internet pornography. Our young people are saturated in it. And one of the first things it does, it starts to cause you to question authority. And when you start questioning authority, you have better have an apologetic to restore that authority. And uh, pretty soon, in culture around, it's almost there right now, give another 18, 24 months, to ever bring up a pornography in culture around us, It'll be as controversial as bringing up a same-sex gender talk or same-marriage same talk, whatever, transgender talk. It'll be controversial because it'll be controversial because they'll say, what right do you have to say it's wrong? And I think we're going to bring that onto ourselves because we're not addressing it today. Why, why do you think people aren't addressing it? Is it lack of knowledge? Is it personal uh, struggle with it? Why wouldn't people talk about an issue if it's as big as you're saying that it is? Well, I'll start with pastors. Because I'll say any significant cultural change down through culture, spiritually, needs to be come down to and through pastors. And there's three reasons, and I have, ba I have this backed up with a lot of research. One, shame, because over half of them are involved in pornography. Second, the fear of exposure. And third, ignorance. The lack of knowledge of how great it is and the way it's impacting its own, their own leaders in the church. So those three things, shame, fear of exposure, and ignorance. I'm doing a, in a couple of weeks, I'm doing about a four-part series. And they said, oh, we want you to really hit on apologetics and all. 
I did it two years ago, the same thing. But do not touch in pornography because it upsets people. I almost canceled. <laughs> I think I think any discipleship program today that does not deal with pornography is irrelevant. It's not worth your time. That's, that's and that's a, 90% of all yeah. programs on discipleship. That's a strong statement, but I, I think that's true. Um, that I think it is it has reached epidemic proportions. The amount of harm and damage that it causes is just off the charts, as you know. Uh, let me go back to your uh, your your statement that you know how how important pastors and church leaders are, especially the next generation. What what advice if you could boil down you know two or three bits of advice that you would have sort of non negotiable things that the next generation of pastors and church leaders have to have. What would you tell them? Oh, number one, you've got to be authentic. If they don't see it, they won't believe it. And why should they believe it if they don't see it? If they don't see Christ in your life and the way you relate to people, then you're not going to get anywhere today as an apologist, a pastor, evangelist, anyone. You've got to be authentic. Third, have your marriage and family together. I believe my relationship with Dottie and my four children and ten grandkids has opened up more doors, give me more opportunities and all my education, everything, to share Christ with young people. Uh, you've got to live a life that becomes not just attractive, but it draws young people to the reason why. And here's the problem with parents. If parents do not have the type of life their children want, they're in trouble. Why? Because their parents go to church. Why should I go to church? Because if I go to church, then I'll have what my parents have, and I don't want what my parents have, so I don't want to go to church. Well, my parents always tell me I need to read the Bible because they read the Bible. Well, I don't want they have. I don't want what they have. So why should I read the Bible? Because if I read the Bible, I will have what my parents have, and I don't want what they have. That authentic life and living it out is so critical today. And then I would say. Be trained. This is one reason why Sean and I revised and totally changed evidence of the man's verdict coming out in October, is that you've got to know just not what you believe, but why in the world you believe it. And if you cannot explain that, you're not going to have much of an impact today. Talk about that a little bit, evidence, when you first wrote it and the new version coming out. Maybe what makes it different and why you think it's still so important for families and churches today? One of the first reasons I wrote evidence was when I would speak, so many students, professors, businessmen, and women, lay people would say, wow, I've never heard that before. Can I get your notes? Can I get your documentation? Can I get your evidence and all? And I always had the philosophy, whatever God has given me, you give away. And, uh, so I went and printed out, it was about 28 pages, 14 pieces of paper, half of eight and a half by 11, and I just documented a lot of the evidence in the Bible. Wow. I had a dollar a piece. I sold about 15000 in just several weeks, and people just so appreciative, and I thought, well, that's nothing. And so the Lord seemed to lay in my heart, look, take some time, and it took a lot of time and document everything that you know. 
lay it out there, because I always say you research 80% more than you could ever use. Uh, I do that because it helps me to arrive at the truth, and it gives me greater confidence and convictions when I speak. And it gives me background to support things that I say. And so I started doing it. It took 13 years. I coded it, compiled everything, documented it. And when I got through, nobody would publish it because I broke every principle of printing and publishing. One, they said your quotes are all too long. But I said, look, I don't want to do what everybody else does. People do short quotes, and they're used out of context. I'm going to do long quotes where people can see the context of what that person was documenting and saying. And it's easier than to share truth. Second, I totally changed the format of, of, uh, of how you um, outline a book. I broke it down into outline form. They said, it'll never go that way. Well, days before it was even, I had to self-publish it, before it was even printed, it became a runaway bestseller for 54 months. Then everybody wanted it. And so I did evidence to help believers to solidify their own faith, plus it was difficult to get this material out there. It's a little easier now with the Internet, but the problem is you can't trust so much of what you read on the Internet, even from Christians, unless it's documented, and most people don't document it. And so this is why I was so thankful to team up with you, Sean, and with about 14 scholars, and completely update with all the new evidence out, everything, that believers could have in their hands. And also, the questions I was asked 30 years ago are different now. They're a lot different. That's why we have a whole chapter just on truth. Is there anything such as truth? A chapter on can you even know truth? A chapter on skepticism? A chapter on postmodernism? No, these weren't even issues 30, 40 years ago. Today they are. And what I wanted to do with this revised Evidence Demands a Verdict is continue to equip followers of Christ to be more effective in and through their lives. Yeah, it sounds like that, uh, you know, evidence and apologetics and um, what, what you've devoted your life to is just as relevant today as it was when you first started out. Um, and I will look forward to seeing the, the new book come out uh, this fall. And we're, we're actually glad to have the opportunity to help publicize that for you because it, it promises to be just a wonderful tool, uh, not only well, for, Scott, for non-believers, but for the church, too. If you sweet talk Sean, he'll probably give you a copy. Well, <laughs> I, you, know, he, he, you know, he reports to me now, so uh, I think oh I've, I've, got that, I've got that leverage over him. <laughs> And, uh, I'm going to have to pray so much more for Sean now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should pray for me. Uh, but you know, um, if you can't sweet talk my son, you can go to readevidence.com and get it. <laughs> you, know, you're, you know, you may be an apologist and a speaker, but Sean said you are a businessman at heart, too. <laughs> I am. <laughs> if there's not money involved, you won't last very long. Well, I'll tell you, there's no such thing as a nonprofit. You better run your ministry like a business or kiss a goodbye. Well, I think and that's one of the greatest ways to trust God is through using sound business principles in ministry. I think we call that good being good, being a good steward. Jo- Josh, it's been wonderful to have you join us here for these few minutes. I look back over your 50-plus years of public ministry. It's what I would call sustained faithfulness and relevance. 
uh, and would that would that your tribe might increase. That uh, you know, as you've been at this for a while, you don't look like you're slowing down much to me. Your your level of energy and passion certainly has not slowed down. Um, that's just that's a wonderful inspiration, I think, to uh, to the the legion of folks out there who look up to you and who are so encouraged by the work that God's doing in your life and through your ministry. So we're very grateful well, to have you with us. Many people say the same thing about you. Oh, you're nice. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, Dad. All right. Next time your ratings start to slip, just call me. <laughs> okay. Love you guys. Bye-bye. All right. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and our guest, Josh McDowell, and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.